Richard Landon is the director of the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library and a professor of English at the University of Toronto. He has lectured widely on a variety of topics relating to book history and has worked with Toronto's Darwin Collection for over 40 years. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. I'd like to talk about your role as the director of a world-renowned rare book library and how it's changed. Uh, you've been the director for some 40... Yeah, I've worked at the University of Toronto since 1967. I've been head of what was the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections and then became the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library since 1975, I guess. When you came in fresh and enthusiastic and excited about the world of books, perhaps you could give us what your mandate was and how you fulfilled it at that point and then how over time it's evolved. Originally I was meant to be a cataloger in special collections and that proved to be a really useful thing because I was interested already in the history of the book, history of collecting and in bibliography. So the first big thing I cataloged was the encyclopedia the mid-18th century French encyclopedia. Diderot? Yeah, yeah, Diderot and d'Alembert mm -hmm. were the editors. Voltaire's in it, that's where he famously said that Canada was the land of snow. Acre of snow. And that's that's right, yeah. not worth thinking about <laughs> even. But it's 35 volumes, counting the plates. So the first thing I did, I still have the notes. Uh, collated 35 volumes of the encyclopedia. Perhaps you could tell us exactly what cataloging involved. Sitting down with the book, whether it was a Canadian pamphlet or 35 volumes of the encyclopedia, and collating it, i.e. is it actually all there, and what kind of anomalies does it have in it that you can discern just from looking at it. So such as marginalia or? Well, that, copy-specific stuff, but also cancels in the text, changes in the text, things that don't add up, the collation, for instance. The wrong page number on the, that on the page. kind of thing, yeah. Then doing some research on it, try and find out as much as you can, which then involved using reference books. The encyclopedia was documented, I mean, it had been written about before, but of course this set was different than what I found. Then it was creating a record according to cataloging rules. I only did that for about maybe two years, but two great things happened. One was the, in 1968, we acquired the Darwin collection, so I cataloged part of that. That involved corresponding with the bibliographer of Darwin, Richard Freeman, who I then got to know very well. He put together the basis of this collection. But the other was Stillman Drake, who came in 1967 to teach in the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology, which had just been set up at the University of Toronto, and brought with him his Galileo collection, which was on deposit and then we gradually acquired over the years. So I started working with Galileo as well. Now my background is theater, English, and classical studies, so this was a whole new experience 
in terms of looking at books as history of science and the documentation of a well, totally different purpose for the yeah, book. And really two revolutions. I mean, in a way, Galileo represents the beginning of the scientific revolution of the 17th century. And Darwin, of course, represents a whole changing universe in the middle of the 19th century. And I still work on both. Well, you've just mentioned uh, before us going uh, live or on air or whatever we are, you've come up with a, a, a an unknown letter just yep. out of the blue from a contact of yours. So yep. It's, yep. It, it doesn't end. Huh? Oh, never ends. No collection's ever complete. So your role then at the beginning was that the, you were actually put physically in touch with the books and you actually did the very basics that a, a librarian would, would do. Yeah, yep. but then got involved with acquiring stuff as well because the department was growing very fast like everything did in the 60s. Part of that was to build the library collections. So here you've got a budget to go out and buy books, is that yep. right? Yep. What an absolute thrill. Yeah, it was wonderful. There was a lot of money available and we could just buy collections. So did you put out notifications? Did you go to auctions? Did yep. you All that. go to bookstores? Yep. So uh, they paid you to travel around and do this? Mm-hmm, yeah. Still do, sometimes. So, sure, it was, I mean, it was a wonderful time. A great example would be history of science, actually. So they set up this institute, hire people like Stillman Drake, who'd had a career, actually, as an investment banker, who was interested in Galileo and turned himself into an academic. And they had enough wit to actually go and look at what collections were there that would support research in the history of science. And so, I mean, there were some bits and pieces and things that accumulated over the years because of the history of the university, which goes back to 1827. When you say not much stuff, what exactly do you not, mean? Not, didn't have many manuscript sources, didn't have the first editions, strong collections in depth in, say, late medieval mechanics, or more relevant, just the development of the telescope, picking up on Copernicus and center of the universe and all that, which is a huge literature and it wasn't here. Well, Stillman and Drake brought quite a bit of it with them, and then what the administration of the university, Simcoe Hall as it's known, decided was that, yes, if they wanted to support this, they had to spend some money, so they made money available. And they <coughs> put you in charge of finding it? Partly. I didn't do all of it. Tell me, if you could, what that involved then? Well, it involved being in contact primarily with the antiquarian book trade, the dealers particularly who specialized in those fields but also paying attention to auctions, dealing with private collectors, because more and more we didn't always have that money as years went by, and we relied more and more on donations, Reasons. gifts and kind. Letting people know that this is what you were after. Yeah. Did you advertise in book collecting magazines and uh, societies? Well, it's more just contact, word of mouth. Also, 
the people who were teaching here, the people who came as graduate students especially, of course, went off all over the place and Toronto became known as a center for this kind of research. Particularly on Copernicus and, and Darwin. And Galileo and, and a number of other things. I mean, we have very large collections of history of medicine as well. The Hannah Institute, they still give us money to acquire material. You're being paid to collect. Mm -hmm. So you would, back then, scour the world as best you could. And then would you actually go and look at them in the bookstores? or Yeah. That. But then, once you get to know dealers really well, they can quote things to you, and you know that their descriptions are accurate, so you can just order it. So we bought lots from catalogs that we were sent from all over the place all the time. But I would go to book fairs. Toronto then had an annual International Antiquarian Book Fair. doesn't anymore and hasn't for a while. But people would come from all over and they would bring... Because they knew what you were they'd, after. They'd bring in a chunk full uh -huh. of books, yeah. What would you look for then? I mean, obviously there's the content and yeah. you'd want scholars to help you determine what the most important thing is and you would yeah. you overlay on top of that your expertise. And try and find out as much as I could myself. About when the first copies were published and who Yeah, published all that, them. all the bibliographical background and why these things were significant up to a point. In the history of science and medicine, the problem is that by the time you hit the 20th century, it gets really complicated. Many of the discoveries, the so-called wow books, are in fact not books at all, they're journal articles. Of course, uh, that requires more expertise than I have in these specific fields. The great thing about universities, though, is, or big ones like Toronto, is that somewhere in the university there's somebody who knows about everything. <laughs> uh, you just have to find them. I've made a, a really determined effort to get to know faculty in a lot of different areas be involved through teaching myself. The notion that a librarian would just sit in a library and find the books that people ask for isn't enough. You have to really be part of what's going on, not just within the university, but in a much more general sense. That's great advice for the, uh, the private book collectors. You read as much as you can about your field of interest. Yeah. And I suppose then you, the next step is you get a handle on the various publishers that specialize in that area yeah. and read all you can about those publishers. And about the booksellers and, in fact, the private collectors who really specialize often know more than anyone else. And in some ways we rely on that expertise because most collectors, if they build a really genuinely great collection, they want it to stay together and places like the Fisher Library attract those collections. It's their memorial, as it yeah. were. It's a lot of people whose names are well known only because they built great collections. It's totally forgotten otherwise. Yeah, it's their ticket to immortality. Yeah, that's right. There's a fair bit of egotism and vanity involved in all this, <laughs> but that's okay. It's a great game if you're going to play the game, and book collecting seems to me about the best game I know. I mean, that's the game, is hunting for the stuff. Then, the end of the game 
in a way is using it, whether you just read the book or whether you actually do a lot of research on it, whether you write about it, they're all different kinds of ways of using books and there are a lot of aspects of books apart from the text as well. I think one of the saddest things is someone spent their lifetime putting together a collection and then it's given off to, not, not that it's a bad thing to give it to the Salvation Army, but, but it's dispersed. Yeah. If you care about what happens to what you have, you should make sure you make provision for that before you slip into dementia, because you can't guarantee that your heirs are going to do what you want. Are there more and more collections that are offered to you that you have to turn down? or? Yeah, turn things down for couple of reasons. One is they could be out of scope. Now there's not very much that's out of our scope <laughs> given that we're, we have cuneiform tablets that are 2000 BC up to Peggy Atwood. We cover a lot of territory but for instance we don't collect English and American children's books because the Osborne collections is down the street and they do it. But obviously you've got a huge amount of stuff already. Mm -hmm. So that would be one reason. Another reason would be the, the lack of quality, I suppose. That if we were offered a collection, especially if we are offered it for sale, then you do look at the rate of duplication, you know, what do we already have. So the phrase used in the old days was building on strength. So you looked at what you had and we have some strengths here so we should build on that because you realize eventually that you can't have everything. Yeah. My own personal collecting experience has gone exactly that way. First of all I thought why don't I collect everything that Harold Bloom identified in his chaotic era. Oh yeah. So I started firing away with all of that and it's all over the map and, yeah. and, I, and I came to a point where I realized there's no way I can get all of these. Many of them are hugely expensive so yeah. let me just focus on a couple of authors yeah. who I really admire and try and get rid of, but getting the value out of what you already have is such a challenge, isn't it? What do you do? Well one thing you can do is to go back one step you buy a good book every day for 50 years, you're likely to have a good collection. But you're right, it needs to be focused. What I encourage people <laughs> to do, of course, is give it to an institution for the tax relief. Now that presupposes that you have enough income to use tax receipts, but often that's more advantageous than trying to resell. On the other hand, nobody would ever advise, although it has been tried a few times, that you should collect books as investment. When I'm asked about that, I just say, well, if you have real expertise, over the long run, you'll do very well. Uh, your heirs and the signs will ship it off to Sotheby's or whatever, and they'll be extremely pleased with the amount of money they get. But if you just want to invest, you might as well buy corner lots or yes, hotel stocks. Go through that as well. You invest in stocks and you watch them go down the toilet yep. and you didn't get any pleasure out of it. None this, at all. this is a huge w yep. uh, investment in, in a great deal of pleasure. Yeah, that's right. In the end you're a custodian. can't take it with you, or at least there's no evidence that I know of. So yeah, sure. What gives you the pleasure? What's rewarding? What provides satisfaction? And don't worry about the money. Marie and I are, are giving away stuff now because, of course, time to make donations is when you 
income is highest, so there's no point in waiting till retirement. But it's long-term, generally, not short-term. It's a lifelong so, project. You look sure. at the advice and they give you in investing circles, and it's the same thing. It's, it's just over the long term. You can have some fun with it if you know enough. Two years ago, I went to the Trinity College sale. Just open, on today, yes. It opened tonight. <laughs> but two years ago, I went into their so-called treasure room, and there's a mint copy in jacket of Elizabeth David's first book, Metatrain Cooking. I would be interested in it anyway because it's illustrated by John Minton. One of my collections is mainly 20th century uh, illustrated books, especially wood engraving. It was 150 bucks. Well, $150 to the Trinity sale is a, it's a fairly big price, except that I happen to know that it's uh, worth a thousand pounds. And I know the person who sold one for a thousand pounds. So, you know, you get a little kick from that. It'll be given away too, but because I've been working on Darwin so much the last few months, I have Darwin's at home as well as here. I tried to put together, not all first, but a complete set of the major books just so I could use them. But I was looking last night at the fifth edition of Origin, which is a very important edition. There, there are six editions of Origin, basically, but the fifth much revised. It's 1869, eight or nine. I bought it in Toronto in 1969 for $2.50. <laughs> so, it's one of those stories. <laughs> sure. Every collector has those stories. Yeah, yeah. And of course, well, the one I tell for Fisher is our first edition of Newton's Principia, which we paid $4,250 for in 1972. The uh, last one I saw for sale was 200,000 pounds. That's a pretty good appreciation. Yeah. So, of course, that doesn't mean anything in terms of the university, but you do think a little bit compared, say, to the hit for the university endowment was 29%. So, yeah. um, just this past fiscal? Yeah. I get zero payout on endowment this year. Which means that well, you don't get any money to purchase any new books? I've got some cushions, and we're not as exposed to endowment as a lot of places. Yeah. I mean, Harvard lost $10 billion from its endowment. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> mind-boggling. Yeah. So basically, your role, the way you fulfilled it was, as we discussed, you, you went out, you uh, looked in all sorts of places, you knew what you were looking for, and you you negotiated obviously yeah. that's and bid and, and whatever yeah, sure then what happened the the person who was the kind of assistant head of the department left and so they asked me if I wanted to do that decided that I actually didn't want to remain a cataloger for my whole career <laughs> so I took that job and eventually then my predecessor retired and I was made head of it and then director of it. I'm not very interested in administration per se, it's endless meetings and all that, but I did all that too. Uh, however, one thing I uh, tried to do was become adept at using other people, delegating authority. Your goal was basically to help the university 
complete as best it could collections in some very specific areas that you're building on those strengths. Yeah. How did that change over time? Well, the internet does two things. One, it has a tendency, although I'm not sure what the end result of that will be, but it has a tendency to homogenize the market. Because if you look up something on ABE and uh, you find 77 copies of the same book and they're all different prices, what happens over time is they tend to become pretty close. The prices? Because, yeah, because yeah. all of the dealers look and see, okay, A has it for $500 and B has it for 300 so maybe if I stick it in at 4 I mean, that's going on all the time. Someone said rare books suddenly became less rare. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. And prices, thousands of dollars, came down to hundreds. Yeah, not quite that dramatic. In, especially in what you're collecting, I guess, but in yeah. other areas it's certainly. Oh, yeah, for books that are essentially common. Or used to be rare, but then suddenly, hey, here they all are. Yeah, sure. Malcolm Lowry's first book, 1936, which was very unsuccessful. Obviously what happened to it was it got pulped during the war, which mm. happened to a lot of fiction, and especially things like detective fiction, and children's books for that matter. Then destroyed too, with bombing and fires. That, and also paper drives. It became very rare, supposedly, so by the 1960s, if you wanted to buy uh, a first edition in a jacket, particularly of Lowry's Ultramarine. It was hard to find and expensive. It took me 15 or 20 years to find a copy for the collection, and I paid a bunch of money for it. Well, if you look it up now, in fact, I bought a copy myself without a jacket, so I'm waiting for a jacket to turn up. Incidentally, how do you <laughs> find the jackets? Yeah. I collect Huxley. I've got no. three of them early ones without the jacket. Where do you get them? The jackets are hard. And that's where the value is. Well, for someone like Huxley, yeah. We have a big Huxley collection. Maybe you've got <laughs> some extra jackets. I don't know about that. <laughs> it's impossible. It's just something fun to do. The thing is about Ultramarine, though, if you look it up now, uh, there are a lot more copies than anyone thought. And that's just because the copies that did exist in institutions, particularly, weren't recorded anywhere that was accessible, now they are. So you look on WorldCat or all these union databases and you just find a whole lot more. Lots of stuff though you don't find at all. Which uh, is a sign that you really do have a rare book if you can't well, find it on the internet. Relative scarcity, yeah, sure. I mean books are rare for all kinds of reasons, but there is a fair bit of artificial rarity. You could buy a first edition of Origin of Species this afternoon if you wanted one, but you'd have to pay for a copy in original cloth, a nice copy, $200,000 for it. The really nice copy we have, Richard Freeman paid 220 pounds for in the 1950s, though. That's a book that all 1,250 copies that were allegedly published on November 24th, 1859, survived. We have three copies. Two of them are rebound, one's in original cloth. That was a book people kept and were told then when their parents or grandparents or whoever handed it down were told, this is important, you should keep this. Mm -hmm. So they did. So they're around.
and there are lots and lots of examples uh, like that. It's just that the books at the top of the market, the ones that are seen as works that did engender real change, cultural change, particularly Western European, just keep going up and up because there's always demand for them. There's always going to be a dot-com executive who will buy the Archimedes Palimpsest or, or Bill Gates by Leonardo da Vinci. The demand remains for those high spots. Where do you think the world of rare books is heading and book collecting? I think two things are happening. Well, one's already happened is specialization, subject specialization. Very hard now to find big general used bookstores. In Toronto, when I first came here, there were maybe 25 dealers or more. That lasted for quite a long time, but it's only one bookseller left on Queen Street. It almost <laughs> brings tears to one's eyes. So Everyone's going online. Sure, and they uh, move out of town, but that's true in mid-Manhattan, in New York as well. There's mm-hmm. very few big bookstores I can go to anymore. Argosy, got to be in the right mood. Bowman's is there, but it's not a very big store. No, they're impossible to deal with anyway. Bowman's are in the skin trade. Skin trade. Bindings. Sets. (laughs) 27 (laughs) feet of Robert Louis Stevenson. (laughs) They do have good books, but their good books are top of the market in terms of Price. So where where are we heading then? One of the things that the booksellers that I know, the ones who've been around for a long time, who tend to be as nostalgic as I am, their concern is how do you develop collectors if people can't go into stores and find things, and finding them online is a very different experience than uh, actually picking a book off the shelf, and that's still how I prefer to shop. Anyone can pretend to be a antiquarian bookseller whether they know anything or not. Which works both ways of course because you can take advantage of that. Yes you can. You can go on eBay and find sometimes great stuff but I don't use uh, ABE or any of those things very much. I would still never buy a book from somebody I didn't know or didn't know at least by reputation. You're saying that to the, the average collector as well? Well I would just say be cautious because There's a lot of stuff out there that's not described properly that you're not going to like. And you won't have much recourse either because they probably already have your visa number. If they don't belong to an association, then there's, you know, you might as well write it off to experience. So I generally, both for Fisher and myself, I buy books from people I know. The question of how you become a collector Collecting's not going to go away. That's a deep-seated psychological requirement of human beings. Some uh, of us have the gene in spades. Mm-hmm. Some of us perhaps not so much. Some people don't care. They used to always claim that women being eminently more sensible than men weren't collectors, which isn't true, of course. There are lots of great women book collectors. The notion of creating something, Tom Tansel gave one of the Nykirk lectures a few years ago that was published as a pamphlet by the Groyer Club where what he's writing about was collecting a scholarship. Thanking the collectors for for preserving and... Yep, and saying that they are as legitimately engaged in academic scholarship as Northrop Frye was. In fact, 
Nori Fry was not a collector at all. He had tons of books, I mean, offices full of them, but he didn't collect per se and probably thought it rather a silly pursuit. But then A.L. Munby wrote somewhere, Tim Munby, that to be looked at with derision by most of your colleagues and friends is a small price to pay for a lifetime of pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> so, Speaking of lifetimes, your time here is limited, I'm guessing. Well, I'm past what euphemistically is called normal retirement now, but I don't have to retire anymore. Where would you like this collection, what direction would you like it to take in the next 50 years? Two things. One, building on what's here, obviously, but trying to explore some new areas, and I've tried to do that too. We have a big collection of Australiana, for instance, which we bought many years ago from a collector who was Australian but spent his whole career in Toronto. At the time that we acquired it, there was no academic program in even South Pacific studies, let alone Australia. It has some New Zealand stuff in it too. But I thought that uh, it was really interesting to have, or important to have, because of the parallels between Canada and Australia mm -hmm. historically in a literary sense, in all kinds of ways. Open or applicable for, for scholarship to compare and contrast. Yeah, that's starting to happen, so I don't worry much about whether anyone's using specific parts of the collection very actively right now. Somebody will eventually, because research in the humanities at least is searching, serendipity, discovery, in the sense of finding out things you'd never thought of before, so that it's going to be useful and maybe even very important to someone sometime. So a research collection really is potential. And having the mm -hmm. genius to see that. And to think long term. When I came to U of T, it was said that Special Collections was 40,000 volumes. It's now 700,000 plus the manuscript collections. So you've had a lot of fun. Yeah, I sure have. And, of course, the contacts I've made in the academic community, in the world of collectors in general, and in the antiquarian book trade, and I've been really lucky. I'm uh, the age where I met and knew a lot of the now legendary figures. I was just around at the right time, so I actually knew John Carter and Tim Munby and Graham Pollard and Colin Franklin. Yeah, I know Colin very well, yeah. I knew Jake Zaitlin really well and I knew Krauss. I knew everybody. Well, if you had some money they paid <laughs> attention to you, but also just being out there, going to Ferris and hustling about. And then colleagues in Toronto. Marie and I both belong to the Grolier Club. We also belong to a very informal group called the Fatheads, or at least that's its euphemism. The directors of big public research institutions, it's Harvard and Yale and Princeton and UCLA and Berkeley, and Toronto's the only Canadian representative. Well, they, now they talk about money all the time. They also talk about, oh, film rights and lots about digital projects and how you fund them. And something else that's happened and will continue, I think, is that we've created about oh, six or seven websites. The most successful ones on insulin, I think it gets the most hits, but 
most recently we did Haller, Wenceslas Haller. Uh, we have one of the largest collections in the world of Haller, the etchings and engravings, so we can then link that with the British Museum print room who are going to digitize their hauler as well. So these links are really important. But one of the consequences of that is people find hauler on our website. For maybe most people, seeing the image is good enough, but for a lot of people, they want to see the original. They'll come to Toronto. They, they come in, yeah. And because of that. Yeah. The other thing that's changed, and this has to do with the net as well, is that it used to be relatively easy to predict the kind of people who would use specific collections, as now you can't predict it at all. I mean, we have the papers of Lord Amherst of Hackney, who was uh, known only really as a collector, died in 1909. I bought this collection a long time ago because, strangely, the history of book collecting itself is not all that well documented. People who spend their whole lives collecting other people's stuff don't manage to hang on to their own records. So it's been used. I've used it and I've written about it. Students who've done work on it. But I had two people, most recently a descendant of Amherst, who I didn't even know existed, got in touch with me. Also this woman in France, in Paris, got in touch with me because she'd found it on our website and what she was interested in was the property values and land development in the south of France from the 1860s on. Amherst had a house built in the south of France and there was a whole English colony and they acquired land, built houses, and this is calm now, but her interest was all this property stuff. So she came and used the collection for something totally different that I would never even have imagined. So that'll happen as well. In terms of book production, well, we get Canadian literature as it comes out. So we acquire every new novel, every new book of poetry, every new drama that's Canadian by a Canadian author published in Canada or abroad. But you don't get it automatically? No, we have to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Two copies are bought. One goes to Robarts to circulate. One comes here as a kind of archival copy. So I see that slice of what's coming in, and for every publisher that goes out of business, three more spring up, there's a ton of books. So it's not slowing down no. at all? And you don't foresee that even with the e-book? Well, not yet. I don't think so. The people that I know who have Kindles, although there's not so many of them in Canada, mostly they're people like uh, literary agents. What they use it for is, of course, you can just download your manuscripts onto it, and instead of carrying two suitcases onto the plane, you can take this little thing. And they're not going to read the whole book anyway. I don't know of anyone who would willingly try and read War and Peace on a Sony, but maybe that'll happen. They're certainly a lot better. I mean, when e-books first came out, they were dismal failure and the companies all went broke. If they do the same kind of job that the iPod designers did mm. and they make it user-friendly, that it could take out a chunk of the and paper, it, paperback and it, and it could, of course. If you go into big place, the world's biggest bookstore, even Indigo and so on, just look at what's there 
what I consider real books are in a minority. I mean, it's astonishing what gets published and even more astonishing that anyone buys them. Just in terms of the content? Yeah, yeah. take a look at self-help sometime. And would you buy one of those books? God, no, somebody does. Last question. You mentioned you have your own personal collection. Talk about legacy or your ticket to immortality. What do you think is your ticket to immortality? In the, that regard. Oh, Marie and I, the biggest collection we have is books about books, particularly the history of collecting, the history of printing, publishing, paper, ink, textual criticism, illustration, all that. Exactly the collection that the us book collectors would salivate over. Those are the books I use. That's the kind of stuff we both teach. We use them all the time. And of course, she has much more specific collections at Massey than are here. She bought, I don't know, six books yesterday from an e-list that someone sent her. That's something else that now instead of getting quotes, or uh, advanced copies of booksellers' catalogs. They send me email attachments, which is great, because then I get first crack. The only reason I have this Darwin letter is that I got first crack at it. He could have sold it 27 times. In fact, it was, I thought, really cheap. I would have put twice as much on it. It wasn't cheap, but... For what it was, yeah. So. It'll change, it'll evolve, but there's still going to be people collecting the original editions of a great deal of Western culture, I think, for a long time. I don't think that's going to change all that much. There's so many medieval texts, for instance, that have never been published, let alone analyzed or translated. I mean, I was at a, a memorial service yesterday afternoon, a guy, one of my colleagues, a guy in history of science who's sort of in phased retirement, he found this 12th century manuscript in the Huntington about miners that's never been published, never been looked at. He says it's extremely interesting and important, and so he's going to publish it, and there's lots to find. But then you can collect space exploration. There's an infinite number of things. Every second week, I'll come up with a new idea. You know, it's a, a whole new reason to go into the bookstore. Yeah, I counted one time at home. Now, some of these collections are, were put together and haven't been much added to, but there were about 40 altogether separate collections. At home? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I've been around for a long time, so. Well, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts uh, okay. about your career. And yeah. I've been speaking with uh, Richard Landon, who is the director of the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library in Toronto and professor of English at the University of Toronto. Thanks again.